I'm in Scotland, it's windy, it's just above freezing, there's snow on the hills, but I've got my hot coffee, I've got my duvet jacket on, let's get some questions answered. Welcome, welcome to episode 42 of Ask Paul Kirtley. As I say, I'm in Scotland. I've been out for a hike today. It's towards the end of the day. It's getting dark. It looks a bit brighter on the screen here, but it is getting dark. We may get a flurry of uh, snow even, the snow on the hills. Um, it's pretty windy today, pretty breezy. So I've dropped down here into the woods. I've tucked myself down with a bank behind me. It's quite sheltered here. I hope there's not too much wind noise directly on the microphone. You'll certainly hear some wind noise in the trees above. And for those of you that are listening on the podcast rather than watching on a video, I'm surrounded by larch on one side looking nice and golden. And behind me, there's a lot of Scots pine. Um, it's a nice piece of woodland. There's a nice stream just over to my, uh, to my right there, which is running. And some of, the, some of the noise in the background is probably the stream running as well, coming down out of the Cairngorm Mountains. But as I say, I've tucked myself in here. It's relatively sheltered. I should stay warm enough at least for the duration of this, but I am gonna crack on because it's getting dark. It's getting dark very early now at this time of year and it is overcast today and it's looking like it might even snow or rain as i say the temperature is just above freezing today it's about four degrees i think where i am here less a little bit higher up so yes anyway let's have a look at what we've got we've got back to a mixture today we've had a few uh, more thematic sessions in recent Aspore Kirtleys and I may well do that again if people have the appetite for it but we're back to answering some general questions that have come in and um, we'll go from there some of them are no doubt very relevant to where I am at the moment and some of them are probably um, a little a uh, little wider relevance than this specific environment but let's have a look at the first one this is about natural compounds and drugs tests and this is from ben and ben asks um hi paul i'm in the royal marines being in the military we are subject to random compulsory drugs testing having recently had one they ask about any medicine prescription or otherwise that we may take my question is i'm interested in foraging and wild foods among other bushcraft activities i was wondering if there's anything that you know of that i could eat that might unknowingly make me fail a drugs test i know things like willow can act as aspirin etc are there things i need to be particularly careful about uh, really enjoy watching Asport Kirtley. cheers ben well that's an interesting question it's not one we've had before ben and you know some of you might get frustrated that i don't answer your questions but i will get to them if they've not been asked before or they maybe have been asked before so do keep up with the previous episodes one of the things one of the reasons why i did this initially started the Asport Kirtley, is because i got the same questions over and over again and i wanted to build up a library 
of, um, of answers to those questions so that people could have them there without having to rely on me getting back to them individually. That takes some time, clearly. I'm not in front of email that often, and when I am, I tend to have a somewhat uh, state of overwhelm. But Ben's question is one that I've certainly not had before. It's a very good one, and it's an interesting one. It made me scratch my head a little bit. I mean, there are plenty of psychoactive plants out there in the world, um, but whether or not the commonly foraged stuff, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, which is probably where you're talking about, Ben, you're based in the UK, when you're, at least when you're on base. Um, I know you'll be posted further afield around the world and you may be on ships and ending up in, in fairly, um, fairly random places by most people's standards. But I would say if you're asking from the perspective of building up your foraging knowledge here, I would say there's there's nothing in terms of the plants that you need to worry about that are not in some ways, you know, otherwise very toxic. So yes, there may be psychoactive elements to them, but they're going to cause you problems in other ways anyway. Um, there are some fungi which do have some uh, psychoactive uh, elements and you know there are you know clearly the famous magic mushroom psilocybin there are things like amanita muscaria as well which have got a, a, a hallucinogenic compound in them um, so i think with the fungi you maybe need to be a little bit more careful but in terms of plants you know if you're digging for burdock roots and cattails and you're collecting berries in the autumn and you're collecting salad greens in the spring you know things like uh, you know whether it's primroses or wood sorrel or violets or any of those sorts of greenery plants there's nothing there that's going to cause you any trouble when you travel further afield of course there are there, you know, there's cocoa plants um, you know from which cocaine's derived you've got things like ayahuasca which is a is a brew of a vine and other other plant compounds which basically um, the vine's got DMT in it another one has got um, a, an inhibitor in it which allows the DMT to be taken up out of the vine brewed up it's quite a famous hallucinogenic brew used by tribes in in the Amazon and, and, and South American jungles. Um, that's something that's prepared though. You're not gonna get that just from eating a particular plant. So I would say for the common and widespread, well-known northern temperate boreal plants that you're gonna be foraging for close to home, northern Europe, Scandinavia, the berries, the roots, the tubers, the nuts, the um, ravens going over there enjoying the wind um, uh, all of those things the berries they're not going to cause any problems a few of the fungi you need to be careful about but they're well documented as being hallucinogenic um, other than that I can't think of anything off the top of my head that would cause you a particular problem with your works drug test so hopefully that's useful to you Ben and a great question and if anybody has any additional information to that i'm always willing to learn if there is some combination of compounds from commonly foraged plants in the uk or northern europe or north america that do somehow raise a red flag 
in drugs tests, whether it's for professional purposes, in terms of military, in terms of being in a position of responsibility, or whether it's sports, um, drugs testing as well. Um, I'd be very interested to hear about those, um, you know, rather than people taking things intentionally um, that are known to be psychoactive and known to be hallucinogenic. That would be very, very interesting if anybody has additional knowledge or can point me in the direction of research papers in that field. All right, thank you. Good question. Off to a good start. Next one. This goes back to a few weeks ago when I was asking for people to send in questions via Instagram video. Um, this is from the Woodsy Welshman, aka Kevin. Um, he's an assistant at Original Outdoors and he is asking about tips for drying clothes. Hi Paul, Kevin here, aka the Woodsy Welshman, and I have a question for us Paul Kirtley. I've just recently returned from assisting on a course of Original Outdoors in North Wales and during the course there was quite a bit of bad weather even though we were under the tree canopy some of us still got uh, relatively wet and I know how I like to clean and so dry out my clothes when they become slightly wet in front of a campfire but I was wondering if you have any trips sorry tricks or tips that you'd like to share with us that you've picked up over the years um, specifically in a temperate climate like this I know it'd be different in more extreme environments but if you've got any some advice for people on how to dry their clothes after maybe they've been cleaned in a stream or maybe they've just become wet, it'd be much appreciated. Thank you. All right, well, I don't have any huge <laughs> insights, probably that aren't common sense, but in terms of drying clothes, let's just rewind a little bit. I try and choose clothing for particular environments that are going to cause the least problem with moisture. So if I know I'm having a fire every night, for example, that might change my choice of clothing versus if, I, if I'm not having a fire every night. And there are two factors there. One is some materials will hold moisture more than others and some will you know, cotton is the classic example but there are plenty of you know cotton mixes you know poly cottons you know trousers in particular that will take up moisture a lot of people in bushcraft circles and who spend a lot of time in woodland prefer to wear ventile jackets as opposed to gore-tex particularly thin modern mountaineering oriented gore-tex jackets just because they're tougher you know a modern gore-tex or event or triple point or other breathable fabric jacket is fantastic in the hills it's lightweight it doesn't add a lot of extra weight to you but it's protective but get it into a piece of woodland like i'm in here and spend some days brushing against pegs that are sticking out of conifer trees carrying wood on your shoulder being near fires those sorts of things you're going to start to see some wear and tear if you're not extremely careful so something a bit tougher, either a much tougher Gore-Tex jacket like some of the Swazi or Nerona jackets that I've talked about in previous videos, or um, a Ventile jacket is going to be the preference. But Ventile is cotton, it works by swelling, the fibres swelling up when it gets wet. You might want to get the moisture out of that, because even though it'll keep you dry, they're, they're cold and stiff to put on in the morning if they're quite wet. So I will maybe choose that over a tougher Gore-Tex jacket because they're more breathable if I'm working hard and I'm going to have a fire in the evenings because I can get the thing dry literally just by sitting there to the fire. If I'm not having a fire, if I'm not certainly going to be able to have a fire or a big enough fire in the evenings, maybe just a small cooking fire, 
then maybe I'm going to choose something like a Nora and a Recon jacket, which is a tougher Gore-Tex jacket that's more suited to the rigors of being in the woods. So first off, I would say think about your clothing selection. Think about what you're going to be able to do to dry, and we'll come on to that in a second. And then think about how much moisture it's going to take up. Think about the other specifications that you need it to fulfill. It's always an engineering problem. Choosing equipment's an engineering problem. It's like, what are the parameters? What does it need to do? What are the limitations? What are the difficulties in the environment? Cross-section all of those, make a selection based on that. Don't be romantic about your selection of equipment. Um, be practical, pragmatic and objective about your choice of clothing. That's the first thing I would say. And then in terms of drying, um, fires are great for drying clothing. The, the danger with fires is people try and dry things too quickly or they try and dry things without monitoring them. In the same way that beginners who are new to campfire cooking, they don't monitor the cooking. We're used to putting a leg of lamb in the oven at a particular temperature and cooking it for a certain time, maybe taking it out and, and turning it or what have you, or pricking it, or, but very, very little management when you come to cooking on a campfire, there's much more management. Same as when you're drying clothes at home, maybe you just hang them on the line. Maybe you just hang them up in the, the bathroom. Maybe you put them in the tumble dryer or the washer, washer dryer and you put it onto the program and you let it go and then it's done. Fires are not like that. Fires are alive. They're a living thing. They need management. There's a different amount of fuel goes on. You're going to get larger flames. You're going to get more sparks. The wind is going to blow the heat around. You're going to need to manage it. So um, yes, by all means, use a fire to dry your stuff, but you're going to need to manage it. I find, you know, if you're chatting with people around the fire in the evenings, you can dry off clothing. I just did a canoe trip last week with um, Kevin Callan and uh, Ray Goodwin and Justine Kogenven. It was a relatively damp week actually compared to some of the other canoe trips I've done recently. We had a very dry summer. The late summer was dry and into autumn. It was dry, it was warm. Um, the spay trips that we did with clients for the through Frontier Bushcraft, we had hardly a drop of rain. We had a little bit of rain on the last week, um, but not very much. The river was dropping. Um, Last week we had more rain, the river came up a lot, um, we needed to dry a few clothes in the evening just because, you know, they're just a little bit damp. Um, some people were wearing dry suits and clothing inevitably gets damp within dry suits if you're wearing them all day just because the perspiration doesn't get out as well as it should. Um, so we were just stood around the fire in the evening, chatting, nice warm fire, just holding stuff there, drying it. That's one way to do it. You know, if you've got a tripod over your fire, one of the things we typically do is we have put up a tarp, we have a tripod over the fire, we use that for the kettle, we use it for cooking. You can get things like socks up on the top of that and they'll dry out quite nicely. And that can be quite, you know, when you're canoeing, even if you're wearing dry pants, if they don't, the moisture doesn't come out, they're gonna get a bit damp during the day, cold mornings, it's nice if they're dry, um, so you can get them up. But I would say use the fire, but manage the, the distance and be conscious of the damage that the fire can be doing. I remember when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, one of the places that I used to go, um, we used to go and mess around there as kids, and you know, we used to build dens and shelters and hide and seek in the bracken and you know, all those sorts of things. And I was over there one day on my own and 
I was trying to access some materials that were quite high up on a bank. It's quite a steep-sided little gully with a stream running down the bottom. And I was on, it wasn't very high, but I was on this bank above maybe about a six foot drop into a pool of water. <laughs> and I slipped on the bank. These are the things you do as a kid. Slipped on the bank, went down the drop, went into the pool of water, got my, got my trousers and boots all wet. And I thought, okay, well, I could go home, it's only a few miles home, but let's get these trousers dry and um, I'll light a fire. It's a good excuse to light a fire. So I was getting into my fire lighting and whatnot at this point, so I was about 13, 14, reading Lofty Wiseman's Survival Handbook. At that point, I was like, right, I'm going to have a fire. So I, I, I made a fire and there were some branches of a, a, a tree, I think it was a hawthorn, coming out about four foot off the ground and I laid my, there were cotton, DPM uh, camouflage, British camouflage, um, light were they lightweights? No, they were. It was they weren't even official trousers. They were a DPM pattern, but they were cheap knockoffs. Um, across these branches, above the fire, I went off to do a few other things. Put my boots back on, and I was wearing Wellington boots, just my underpants. When he's back on, went off to do something else. Came back again. <laughs> I'd effectively made some char cloth and burnt holes <laughs> in these trousers. Um, and they're all they're all singed. Um, it dried them very well, but that's what I mean about management. You you can't just go away and leave it. So fires are good, heat's good. Other than that, there are you know some people say well put things in sleeping bags. Yeah, you can, but you need to be careful. Things are sopping wet. If you put them in with you in your sleeping bag, either in the sleeping bag with you or between a sleeping bag and a bivy bag, they're going to make the sleeping bag wet. And under some circumstances, you can tolerate that, that you're within the bounds of the performance of the bag, that even when it's depleted by being a bit wet, and it's better doing it with a synthetic bag than with a, with a, um, a down bag, which will clump, you know, a synthetic bag is still not nice to sleep in if it's wet, but if it's not that cold, you'll get away with it. Body warmth will drive off some of the moisture, it'll drive it off from the clothing, it will drive it off from the sleeping bag. But what you don't want to do is put sopping wet clothing in contact with a sleeping bag and then end up with a really wet sleeping bag and being cold, because that's just gonna drain your energy as well. So do be careful about that. I do, for example, if I've got slightly damp socks and it's not super cold, I'll just keep them on. In the sleeping bag particularly if it's a time of year when i wouldn't normally be wearing socks because my feet will be warm enough anyway i know i can get away with pretty much dry my socks in the bag overnight and they'll be they'll be nice in the morning so i do that um, i sometimes put um, layers in between the sleeping bag and the bivy bag again if it's not too cold but only if they're a little bit damp it's almost like i'm airing them out rather than drying them out um, and then the other, the other factor which comes into this is just manage your perspiration as well. Manage your effort, so regulate your temperature, re ventilate your clothing, manage your clothing, take layers off before you're working hard, if you're working hard with an axe or walking up a steep hill, so you don't put too much sweat into your clothing, so you don't need to dry it out in the evening as well. So that's a factor. If it's raining, clearly you can't do anything about that, but choosing the right wet weather gear, making sure that you can dry it, you know, it's either plastic and you can shake off the moisture, pretty much. It's got a good water repellency, it's got a good um, water repellent layer on it still. You can shake the moisture off, you can roll it up, and it'd be pretty much moisture free. Or if you 
wearing something like a ventile jacket which is more breathable it's tougher in the woods but I would only be doing that if I could dry it out with a fire in the evenings if it gets overly wet that's the sort of thinking that I will have so appreciate what you can do what the limitations of the gear is and then choose your equipment as a whole take a holistic view about the environment the activities that you're going to be undertaking and the means that you're going to have to get things dry the time that you're going to be out the time of year that it is bring all of those together and make your gear selection on that basis and then use the means that you've got available to you to sort the gear out if necessary it's getting dark the screen got a needle large needle in the coffee um yeah it's getting dark the screen the gain is coming up but it's it's looking quite dingy here now thanks to kevin for that question sorry you weren't the first one to answer via instagram next question weirdest encounter at night and this is from andreas in germany i think judging by the uh, email address hey paul what was your weirdest encounter at night in the woods being it of animal or human origin mine for example was a roebuck jumping into the lake right next to me in the middle of the night cheers and all the best from germany andres yes you are from germany <laughs> cool um weirdest encounter at night. now some of our encounters at night might be weird for some people but i kind of get used to them so all the common things like you know foxes and bad foxes calling and badgers making noises and owls um, and th those sorts of things are common but they do freak people out if they're not used to them weirdest things for me um, two spring to mind as being slightly unusual one was uh, two black labradors having escaped from a farm or a house coming into the woods and sniffing around our camp making <laughs> They weren't barking, they were just running around and panting, you know, like boom, 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 boom. you could hear the feet on the ground, you know, I was lying on the ground. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> boom. And he's like, what the hell is that? It was two, two black Labradors, probably smelling our food, being interested. That was one that was a bit unusual. Um, the other one that was took me a while to work out what the hell was going on was um, I was sleeping in uh, down in the south again in, in Sussex mainly pine forest and I could I could hear this click it was a still night dead still very different to what it is at the moment you couldn't there was not a, a breath of wind and it was in the summer and I was lying there and I'd been looking up at the stars and I was drifting off and I could hear this clicking noise it was like somebody clicking two fingernails together like click click it was like very oh, like, oh, like two guitar plectrums together like click 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 and I was like what the hell and it, you know when you it's like a dripping tap or a ticking clock when you try to go to sleep if it if it gets into your head it's like you, you can't not concentrate on it and it starts to bother you and as I say there was no other sound and I was like what on earth is that and click click and I was looking around click click and I was like, is it a piece of my gear when I move? You know, sometimes you can kind of trick yourself. And it's like, no, it's not coming from me. It's not something on my tarp or bivy or anything moving around. It's not air escaping from my water bottle or anything weird like that. And in the end, I had to get up and get my torch out, get my lamp out and go and find what it was. And I was looking around. I said, like, is it something on the ground? And I was moving, moving, moving. And I eventually got to a tree that was, you know, three or four meters behind my tar. 
and I was like, it's coming from this tree. And what it was, was a beetle emerging from the tree. So the larva had been, had been burrowed into the tree, the larva had been in the tree, and it was coming out of the tree, and it was the, the action of the, I'm assuming the mandibles of this thing, coming out of the tree, that was making this clicking noise um, coming out. I think, alternatively, maybe it was some sort of mating uh, attraction thing, because it was fairly regular. It wasn't like a like trying to dig it, it was like a click click. It's almost like it was trying to attract its um, attention to itself. I, I'm not um, an insect expert by any means. So it was a little black beetle, um, sort of long oblong, there were a few of them around. Um, it was making this clicking noise. Anybody got any insight into why it was doing that other than getting out of the tree? Um, I'd be interested to hear. So that was kind of weird because it just took, it, it was unusual, it's something I wasn't used to. It took me a while to figure out what it was. And then the, the other thing, um, wasn't me directly who experienced it, but Emma Hampton, who used to work with us at Woodlaw and then came to work with me at Frontier, um, woke up with a, a miniature horse nuzzling her one morning, and it had escaped from a paddock that was next to the woods that we were camped in and come in into our camp and um, thought we were its friends and uh, yeah, was uh, snuffling around Emma's bivvy. So that was another weird one um, that we've encountered. But yeah, um, all the other stuff that some people find weird, the noises that some people are freaked by in the woods at night, they're, they're fairly common and uh, they're nice to hear. But yeah, occasionally you get something which it throws you that you've not experienced before um, and you should expect you should expect the unexpected I think there's always something else that you've not experienced before you know and it's been interesting um, you know the the planet earth stuff the the BBC documentary about wildlife that's been on with the the baby iguana running that's been it's gone viral on the on the internet recently and the race of snakes chasing it there's always stuff that people are seeing that they've not seen before or at least not recorded before um, and and yeah when you go out you're gonna see stuff that you've not seen before that just that just happens and that's one of the joys of being one of the joys of being out all right, another Instagram question, getting caught up with some of those other video questions. This one is from Vince, who goes under the name of Jan Overton on Instagram. Um, I'm hoping I can get the video for this. I checked just before I came out um, today, this morning, that, that this video is still there. He's, he seems to have taken the video down, but it's, it's because his, his, his account was private. He messaged me saying he'd, he'd put a video question up, but I couldn't see it because it was a private account. He then made it public. I watched the video. I took a screenshot from it, which I'll put up now anyway. And you can see, you can see the question anyway. Um, he's, he's pointing at some aspects of a bow drill, baseboard, a hearthboard. And uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but that's what the question's about. So the question is about his um, notch in the uh, in the hearthboard and whether or not it should be wider at the bottom than at the top so you've got this sort of cheese cheese wedge cut out should it be as you're looking at it in terms of if you're looking at it front on should it be wider at the bottom for the dust to accumulate than at the top that's really the crux of the question and also how far should that wedge go into the middle because he's wondering if he's doing something wrong 
being somewhat inconsistent with it. So to answer those first two questions, it doesn't need to be wider at the bottom than it is at the top, as long as it's wide enough at the top. And the good rule of thumb for that segment that you're cutting out um, of, the, of the circle is that it should be an eighth of the circle. And there's no massive mathematical genius reason why that is. Some people try and make one up. I've got a math degree. There isn't a genius mathematical reason why it's an eighth of that circle. The reason why it's 45 degrees, you know, you've got 360, quarters would be 90, eighths is 45. It doesn't matter if it's 43 or, or you know, 48, you know, there isn't, it's not critical. What's critical, and this is why an eighth is a, is a good rule of thumb, what's critical is that there is enough space to accumulate enough dust to generate an ember, to consolidate an ember. So it needs to be big enough for that, but if it's too big, when you pull the bow and the drill is coming towards you, because you, you put the wedge on the side that you can see normally, that's the best way you can see what's going on. So as you pull, if it isn't narrow enough to retain the drill, it's gonna pop out. So it needs to be wide enough to collect enough dust, but not so wide that it pops out. So an eighth is a good rule of thumb for that. That does that job well. So as long as it's that wide at the top, it doesn't need to be any wider at the bottom to answer that question. How far into the middle should you go of the circle? All the way, all the way. But I think the issue with at least the set that you showed in your video, and as I say, the screenshots, I'll put them up again here now, giving myself more work to do in the editing, but it's worth you having a look. The second photo here, second photo here, where Jan's turned it over a little bit more, you can see that that baseboard is not very thick. It's not very deep. And I think that's the primary issue there. You can see how dark it is, because I'm getting glow from my phone now, even though the camera's trying to compensate, but it is getting dark, so I'll crack on. So I don't think the baseboard is thick enough in that particular example that you showed. It should be the depth of the baseboard, again, rule of thumb, but it's a good one, the baseboard should be as deep as the diameter of your drill. So if the diameter of your drill is say two centimeters, the depth of your baseboard should be two centimeters. Doesn't want to be too much because by the time the dust has dropped, it's going to be too cool. It doesn't want to be too thin because you don't accumulate enough before you drill through the thing. And I think that's possibly the issue with your baseboard, particularly if you're trying to use it more than once in the same, in the same hole that you've drilled. So hopefully that helps Jan. And thanks for the question. Next one before it's got, I'm gonna to have to turn the infrared on this camera soon. Organizing a camp for an overnight camp. Overnight stop, sorry. This is from Gustav. And his question is, um, well he says, hello, many thanks for sharing your knowledge in such a generous manner. Much appreciated. Well, you're very welcome, Gustav. I'm glad that you enjoy the shows. Gustav's question is, how do you prefer to organize your camp for an overnight stop? What goes where and what's your reasoning? And he says, next time you're in Sweden, try some sea kayaking in the Stockholm archipelago. I'll be happy to guide or advice on good areas. Best regards, Gustav back. Okay, Gustav, that's quite an open-ended question. So, 
in terms of my personal gear, I like to keep everything as close to me as possible. Um, so if I'm out with, if you go to my blog, you will find I've done an article on a sort of standard kit that I will take to British Woodland um, and it serves me well, particularly when I'm working on courses, when I'm living out in the woods, which I do for weeks on end in the summer, that's just my baseline. Yes, I might modify it here or there, warmer sleeping bag in the autumn or the early spring or um, different layers sometimes, you know, but that's, you know, if you replicated that, and I'm not saying you should, but if you did, that would be a good baseline. If I, what I want with that kit really, most of it's just going to be my personal bivy kit. I'm going to have a tarp, I'm going to have stuff hung up under my tarp, I'm going to have bivy bag, sleeping bag, sleeping mat, my rucksack will go under the tarp and I'm going to have my wash kit there, you know, spare clothes such as they are, it's not going to be much, spare pair of socks, spare pair of underpants, and maybe a spare warm layer in the sleeping in the uh, rucksack in the dry liner just left there things like the cooking pot are going to be out i'm going to be using those i i will have my fire somewhere and i will tend to keep my mug my cooking pot those bits and pieces with the fire until i tidy up and leave so i don't like spreading stuff out i like to put things in the same place in the rucksack and then when i put things up um, so another uh, article that I'll link to is how to get organized under a tarp. I think that's on the Frontier blog that I wrote quite a few years ago um, using a hanging line, hanging stuff up. Um, I'll link to that here in the video. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, that should give you some idea of how I organize my tarp, but I don't have a lot of stuff with me to start off with. Now, if we get into the context of doing canoe trips, it's a, or, or ski touring or winter, you know, snowshoeing. It's like, how long's a piece of string? You know, it's like, what gear have you got with you? What circumstances are you in? But generally, if I have a general principle, I like to keep everything pretty closed down and together. I don't like stuff spread out. I don't like stuff down on the ground. I like to hang things up or have it in the bag that it belongs in, um, have things on my person, have things tied onto me if they're on my person, things like fire steel, pocket knife, those sorts of things. Um, I don't have a lot of stuff. So um, on a canoe trip, I'll often, you know, the times of years and the places I go canoeing, they're gonna be biting insects. In the summer, I'll have a tent or at least a tent inner and a tarp and everything's going to be kept in there other than the cooking equipment which if it's going to be in bear country is going to be away that's going to be put away in barrels or strung up um, but it's either going to be a personal sleeping area or it's going to be a communal probably a fire-based site where the rest of the kit is and nothing else is anywhere else other than those places even if i put up a uh, a washing line I'll try and put you know to dry off equipment so we've had a wet day and then you've got a sunny day I'll try and put things either close to where the communal area is or close to where my personal area is I don't extend and have to then have a an ad hoc system for remembering where everything is I like to be able to visually check that I've got everything so what we sometimes call a paranoia check at the end of a camp you, you can look around your your communal area you can look around your personal area and they're the only places that any of your gear has been and if it's not there it's in your bags and then of course when you're packing your stuff if you always have a place for everything and everything in its place then you also notice if something's missing so those two systems if you apply those general principles have a place for everything everything in its place in your kit and only have kit that's either in a communal area 
or in a personal area, then you reduce the chances of losing stuff. Those are the general principles. Within that, there's a lot of room for maneuver, but those are the general principles that I always apply if you want a general overarching strategy. Right, it is getting quite dark now. Well, that's fun. Right, well, this is relevant because I'm in Scotland and this is a question from Al Murray. Um, I don't think he's a pub landlord, but he might be. Um, da, 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 da. Have you ever crossed paths with any predators on your travels? And if so, how did you deal with the situation? Second is, I heard some time ago about wolves possibly being reintroduced into Scotland. Do you know if this is still on the cards and what are your views on it? Love the blog and the vids. Cheers, Al. Um, predators, yeah, lots of predators. Um, predators in Canada, predators in Africa, uh, tracks of predators more than actually seeing them in Scandinavia. Wolf, uh, bear, lynx in different parts of the world. Um, in, in Africa, everything from sort of scavengers like jackals through to, you know, you've got caracals, um, leopards, lions. I've camped in places where those have been. Um, and the way you deal with those situations is there isn't really a situation. You're just in an environment where those creatures are living and you manage the situation in terms of your camp and how you um, conduct yourself according to the environment that you're in. It's just part of the the risk factors, if you like, part of the assessment of the environment. So, um, you know, I can't generalize more than that. I haven't had a, a bad encounter with um, predatory animals. Um, I've never been anywhere where there are polar bears. That's a different situation, I understand that. But in terms of brown bears or black bears, um, I've not had a bad encounter. Um, and so I haven't had to deal with that situation in that way. But there's two points there. One is that means, it still doesn't mean I'm complacent. Some people, it's like people don't wear their seatbelt because they've never had an accident in their, in their car. That's not a rational decision. So you still, even if you've not had a problem, you're still careful. And because, I, I think because we are careful when we do trips with food um, around camp, getting food on our clothes, where we wash up, where we put toiletries and all those sorts of things at night, you reduce the chances. So it's that kind, that's how I deal with the situation is taking the necessary precautions and being careful. Not being paranoid, but being careful. Just in the same way as, you know, if you're climbing, you check that your knots, you check your buddy's knots. If you're uh, paddling, you check your, your friend's PFD. Um, buoyancy aid is clipped up properly. Um, you look after each other, you just take the necessary precautions to minimize the chances of a problem. Um, and it's the same in areas where there, are, where there are predators. I think in the UK in particular, we get quite het up about these things because we don't have any big predators. We don't, have any, we don't even have any big mammals like elk, which can cause problems in places, or buffalo that can cause problems in places. We're just, we've got nothing. The biggest animal that we've got is red deer and they can be a bit, they can be a bit grumpy at, um, and stand their ground at the time of the, the rut, but you don't hear about many people being injured by deer, certainly not just general um, members of the public. It tends to be more people who are managing deer, looking after deer in deer parks, Richmond Park, you know, in London, for example. Um, 
you hear about the keepers um, or, the, or the deer management people sometimes being injured in managing the deer and looking after them, but generally, um, no, we don't have a problem and therefore we, it's kind of an unknown to us and it's a worry. There's, they are so far down your list, you know, wolves. Yes, there is the odd occasional bad wolf encounter that people have, but it is so rare. You know, wolves do much more badly due to people than people do due to wolves. Um, you know, bear encounters, yes, there are some cases of people being mauled by bears, and there was that one on, on that went around Facebook recently where the guy had walked out, his ear was torn off, he had lacerations on his on his arm. Um, but those are the those those are unusual, which is why they get talked about. Um, you know, many more people get injured. Uh, in car accidents every day and yes okay there are more people traveling by car on roads than there are in in the uh, in bear country but still if you worry if you look at the overall risk of making a trip somewhere um, bears and wolves and other animals are a long way down your list of concerns um, if you look at how people die in the outdoors accidents around motorized transportation um, whether it be vehicles, um, 4x4s, or snow machines, or any of that type of thing. Um, drowning, whether it's through trying to cross water or traveling on water, they're much bigger concerns. Um, people who climb and go into the mountains, getting lost, disoriented, hypothermia, falling off things, dying through falling from height, avalanche, all of those things are bigger concerns to the outdoor community than predators generally so I I'm, I'm careful but I don't get paranoid about it in terms of real rewilding it would be fantastic if Scotland you know particularly this part of Scotland where there is some of the last remaining uh, original Caledonian pine forest um, just a bit further down from where I am now it would be fantastic if it was reforested we had you know, native more, you know, pine martins and capercaillie and um, it was more like the north of Sweden, for example, and then you could have moose and elk, you might have wolves and bears. That would be fantastic, but it's never gonna happen, unfortunately, not in a widespread sense. You might have fenced in enclosures. Um, you know, there are already wolves in the highlands. They're at the wildlife, the Highland Wildlife Park down the road from here, near, between Newton Moor and King Ussie. Um, there are already wolves here. There's Arctic fox there. There's all sorts there, but they're not wild. And I think the, the problem you, you would have is there's just too many people. There's too many roads. Um, that would be bad for you know wildlife as well as um, as people. Uh, it's just such an intractable problem. You know we're largely an agricultural society still. There's a lot of farms. There's sheep. There's cattle. There's small holdings. Um, you put links out. And, 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 and again, you know, I'm not, I, I think they're, they're absolutely fantastic animals, but people are going to be looking for the first instance that a lynx takes somebody's chicken or pet cat or pet poodle and they're going to demonize it just in the same way as when sea eagles have been reintroduced or whatever it is that they get demonized because they're taking something from a human. And I think there are just too many people, you know, Britain in particular is very highly populated. We're nearly 60 million people, six zero million people in a small amount of land. 
and to, to try and reintroduce those big predators here is going to be problematic. I'd love to see it and I would have no problem camping in these woods if there were wolves around. I really wouldn't. Um, but is it going to happen in my lifetime? Probably not, um, unfortunately. As I say, maybe in, within large enclosures, you know, areas that are um, owned and managed by a single entity, but otherwise, um, I'd, I, I actually need to get some rewilding people on my podcast to have a more in-depth conversation about what people realistically think is possible. But that's my view. Um, I, I, even in even in places in Scandinavia, the you know where there are, where there's animal husbandry in terms of reindeer herders, there's an uneasy relationship between lynx, wolverine, wolves. Um, not so much bears because they're, they're not active in the winter, but certainly wolverine, lynx, and um, and wolves. The, the the people are yeah. There's, there's an uneasy relationship between them, which is a shame, but it's just, and that's in a big area of forest. I'm going to turn the infrared torch on this now, if I can remember how to do it, because it's getting very dingy. There we go. If you're listening by podcast, nothing will have changed. If you're listening on watching on video the screen will have changed there ah, the torch is up there it's been obscured by the so i put a big muffler on the microphone but now it's getting in the way of the torch right carcinogenic campfires question via twitter from sick tommy t virus i think <laughs> i'll just call you tommy <laughs> all right tommy um, he says, I just had three days eating and living off a campfire. Have you any concerns about the carcinogenic properties of wood smoke? Um, in short, yes, I have. Um, if you've ever spent any time, anyone who's ever spent any time in camp with me will know that I get quite irritated with people putting uh, wet and green wood on the fire because you then get incomplete combustion, you get a lot of smoke, and that smoke's not good for you. Um, wet bark on the outside of logs you get a lot of smoke from. I don't like that, I like clean burning fire, and the, the most enclosed space I like to be in with a fire is either under a tar or under a parachute, and even then, if it's too smoky in there, I'll just stand outside. I, uh, I have I have to be careful because I'm exposed to it quite a lot. I'm teaching, we have sessions under parachutes, people that are inexperienced with fire put the wrong wood in terms of it being damp and um, because it's been off it's off the ground, it's not seasoned properly, they've taken something that's a bit green. Um, that then causes a lot of smoke, it's not good for me, it's not good for them. So I, I'm very keen to try and encourage people not to, to do that. Um, Equally, when you're cooking on a fire, um, you want you, just the same way as you don't want to be breathing in, you know, smoke from over hot oils at home. You don't want to be breathing it in outside as well. Burning people have a a bit of an insistency on burning stuff in fire. As soon as you've got a fire, people chuck all manner manner of rubbish in the fire as well, and I think that's probably in some ways a bigger concern if people are putting petrochemical based products plastics uh, polythene that type of thing cellophane on 
fires, that puts up some really nasty noxious fumes. Even doing things like melting the ends of paracord, don't do that in an enclosed space. And a lot of people do that at home, they'll melt the end of paracord, uh, you know, in their kitchen or in their workshop or what have you. The fumes off that are not good for you either. Always try and do those things out in the fresh air and not be breathing them in directly. Um, in Africa, there's been quite a move among some of the aid agencies, some of the NGOs, to try and get indigenous people, um, try and get local people away from cooking on fires in huts in enclosed spaces because it was proven to be shortening the life of those people. I've been to Maasai huts in Tanzania, for example, where you go inside, it's pitch black in there, and the reason it's pitch black is because the flies don't go in. Remember, they herd cattle, they herd goats, they have those livestock close to them where they live. Um, they have a tiny, tiny little window, a doorway that goes in where you've got a bit of a, 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 a bend often, so it doesn't really let the light in. And then you've got a tiny, tiny little window. It's very difficult to see in there. There's a small fire in there for cooking, what have you. If you put a head torch on, or you take a photograph with a flash and then look at the photograph, you'll see that everything is blackened in there. The walls are blackened, it's sooty. That is not a healthy environment. It's like living inside a chimney, um, like an old-fashioned chimney place. You know, people used to send kids up for, to be a chimney sweep, all that soot. Um, that's what you're living in and that's not healthy so some of these um, clean burning stoves that have been put on the market and you, you, that small campfire that small stove that you can buy in the UK there's in other parts of the world there's a larger one that, that was developed for Africa um, which is much cleaner burning and it also produces electricity um, that one of the reasons for that is to try and improve the health of the population so people are not breathing in all this smoke because it's not good for you it doesn't just cause, you know, it isn't just a problem with um, carcinogenic problems, it's also just lung health in general, you know, you get other respiratory problems from breathing in a large amount of particulate matter. It's the same as if you breathe in a lot of pollen or, you know, you're in, we used to play in hay bales when we were kids and it, you come out of playing in a barn full of hay bales and you felt like you couldn't breathe and there's a reason why there was a um, a condition called farmer's lung because of that stuff going into their lungs. Um, so yeah, the less you can be breathing in smoke and particulate matter in any situation, the better. So I always, if I have a fire, I don't tend to have it in an enclosed space. I'll have it under a tarp or under a parachute and I'll try and burn the driest material possible so you get the most complete combustion, you get flames rather than smoke and you get less stuff to inhale. Good question though. One that probably doesn't get talked about enough. Last question. This is from a while ago, apologies for. We've had a few questions like this, which is why I haven't got to this one for a while. This is from a young man who sent a selfie on Instagram and SR, SR Life survive whose name is Josh handle is SR life survive Josh he says he's new to bushcraft getting really interested in it but I'm wondering how do you learn about wild edibles and what can and can't eat and some other medicinal uses um, well somebody else has commented on find some shrooms they're pretty good you do need to be careful with mushrooms there 
there's a few reasons, fundamental reasons why you need to be careful with mushrooms compared to say plants, relatively. One is that the, the, the seriously poisonous ones are seriously poisonous and that's a sort of tautology, it's a, it's a, it's a truism, but um, things like death cap, panther cap, um, some of the um, some of the Cortinarius and, and some of the other nasties are really nasty. They just, you know, they'll they'll either ruin your kidneys or ruin your liver or both. And there, a lot of them have no antidote or no way of dealing with them once you've got them into your system, and you end up needing a you know a transplant at best. Um, you end up on a dialysis machine as a as a as a good outcome of eating the wrong mushroom. That's one reason. So the the the, the severity of getting it wrong is bad. Um, in terms of the risk of getting it wrong with mushrooms, there are lots of fantastic edible mushrooms, but there are also just generally a lot of mushrooms, there are a lot of fungi, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of species. And so getting to know them is, is hard. Um, they're not always present. Even from one year to the next where you go, you won't necessarily find the same one. So just getting to know them takes a long time. Certainly there are some species which are easier to recognize and safer than others. So things like the Boletus um, and those, those, port, those poured mushrooms as opposed to gilled mushrooms, hedgehog, the sarcodons are those ones that have got spikes on the bottom, the bracket fungi, things like chicken of the woods, um, some of the easier to recognize good edibles like the, the, the regular chanterelles, although there are a couple of poisonous ones, you just need to make sure they're not, but there are easy ways of doing that. Some of those basic ones you can get to know, and then all the little brown jobs, all the non-distinct ones, um, ones with white gills, just avoid those to start off with. So yes, you can get into mushrooms. And then the other thing about mushrooms is that they are a bit more variable. You know, a, a small puffball, uh, like a perdon perlatum, for example, is edible but a small amanita will often look very much like a small puffball until it's turned into the, the fully mature fruited body. And it might be um, something like a panther cap, which you don't want to be eating. So you do need to be careful. They're more variable. There's more of them to know. The severity of getting it wrong with some of them is, is, is significant. So just be a little bit careful with fungi. But yeah, the best way to learn about fungi is to learn from somebody who already knows their fungi very well, frankly. That's the way I learned a lot of fungi. I worked with some very good mycologists and I learned from them. And they showed you, you know, with 100% confidence um, what certain things were, how to differentiate between them, and you had 100% confidence in them because they're an expert in their field. That's the best way to learn. Feel them, smell is important, texture, the context of where they're growing, all of those things you need to learn. What species of tree in particular do they grow with? All of those things are important. In terms of trees and plants, um, trees are probably the easiest thing to learn in any environment because compared to the number of plants and the number of fungi for example they're probably the most limited in terms of diversity of species in most places certainly north america northern europe um, scandinavia right around the northern hemisphere once you get into the tropics it can be a little bit more difficult it can be a lot more diverse there is a lot more biodiversity in the tropics than there is out with the the tropics but most places the common species of tree you're going to get to know pretty well that's, the, that's where I would start. Get to know the common species of trees where you are, and then 
cross-section that knowledge of I know how to identify this spruce, this pine, this alder, this uh, sorbus, this, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, tilia, you know, basswood or whatever it is. I recognize these. These are what I have around me. And then cross-section that with knowledge of what you can do with it in terms of food. Pine needle tea, um, eating the leaves of the lime or the basswood in the spring, etc., etc. You build up that. So get to know the trees, then learn what you can do with them, cross-section that knowledge. Then in terms of the plants, concentrate on in the spring on some of the greenery. You, there are some poisonous plants that come up in the spring. It's a defense mechanism from hungry, hungry animals, but there's also some good spring edibles. So concentrate on some of the greenery in the spring and concentrate on the berries and the nuts in the autumn. They're gonna give you lots of good flavors. They're relatively easy to differentiate between as well once you start looking at the detail and you know, you've got the rest of the, the plant. And if those berries are on a tree or a shrub, assuming you've learned the trees and the shrubs to start off with, then you're gonna have all of those, you know what the leaf looks like, you know what the shoot looks like, you know what the bark looks like, and then the berry, is going to be relatively easy to identify because it's going to be quite distinct in and of itself and then also you're going to have the rest of the tree or shrub ID features to help you nail that down as well. That's where I would start. The hardest is probably underground storage organs because you need to learn the the, um, you know, so roots and tubers and corms, rhizomes of plants, you need to be able to identify the, the aerial part, the above ground or the above water part of the plants to be able to positively identify the roots. That's worthwhile in the long run because you're gonna get a lot of starch, carbohydrate energy from those underground storage organs, but it takes a little bit longer. You can't just go digging the ground up and pulling out roots because you're gonna get poisonous species growing right next to edible species. So you have to be, have to be careful. Um, to get you started, um, I've got a few articles on my blog, um, the five survival foods that every forager should know, five survival plants. I'll link to that here um, and in the show notes. And there's a few other things that will help get you started that I'll link in the show notes as well. So go across to paulkirtley.co.uk. I'll put some useful links in there for things that are common and widespread and useful so that you can start to, to get to know those and anybody else that's interested in that. And then you can go from there. And if you're really interested in um, learning about tree and plant identification, whether it's for food use, whether it's for fire lighting, whether it's for other utility use like making cordage, etc, um, etc, et all the bushcraft and survival uses, I do run a, an online tree and plant identification course which opens every January. It's a 12 module course, 12 month course um, over the course of a year. There are live sessions with me as well over the internet. Um, there's lots of work for you to do in your locality. That will be coming out again in, um, in January. So keep an eye out for that. The best way to find out about that when it's available, because it only opens once a year, the best way to find out about that is to get onto my mailing list, my email distribution at paulkirtley.co.uk. It's not a sales distribution by any means. Basically, it's 99% me just sending emails about articles and other elements of my blog, making sure you're aware of them, putting some of it into context, extra information, occasional contest or competition um, or offer um, in that sense. Um, but it's just, just information flow. It's just so that you get that. And then when that 
when that course comes available I'll send a quick email out and then if you want to learn more you can then just you basically sign up for more information you won't hear anything more about it you'll hear about it once a year and that's it unless you want to hear more in which case I'll send you the stuff so I'm, I'm certainly not a spammy person I just want to put as much information out there as possible but if you're interested in tree and plant ID that's something you probably want to have a look at good question as with a lot of bushcraft and survival skills it starts with being able to identify you know, whether it's it, it's finding food or finding firelighting materials or whatever it is you cannot make the most of your bushcraft skills until you can identify the resources and most of the resources that we're going to be using week in week out are going to be trees and plants and fungi and that brings us to the end of this session in the dark it's a while since we've had one that finished in the dark it's getting a little bit wilder out here i don't know if you can hear the wind going through the trees but the wind has definitely picked up a bit in the time that i've been out it's a bit chilly here now i'm going to have another cup of coffee from my vacuum flask and then i'm going to call it a day and head back to base um, heading back south soon i'll be stopping off in the northeast for a little while heading back south and yeah i can't believe we're already pushing through november already there's snow on the hills here already um, i think it's going to be a good winter in terms of those of us who enjoy the snow and getting out in all seasons so wherever you are whatever you're doing enjoy the outdoors be safe and keep the knowledge sharing going share this out it's all about sharing the knowledge um, one of the reasons i get lots of these questions is that there aren't so many people that know this stuff these days and i'm not saying i'm special there's a lot of people out there who know good stuff as well but it's incumbent on all of us who do know things who have experience of things that work in terms of bushcraft and survival and outdoor skills to share them around as much as possible it's a fantastic community i'm very glad to be part of it and uh, thank you for your attention thank you for your support and i will see you on episode 43 of ask paul kirtley before too long and those of you that are listening thanks for listening and i will speak to you on episode 43 take care cheers bye bye hello it's me again just a quick request to you as a podcast listener if you listen to this on itunes in particular but any other podcast platform that it is distributed to where you can leave a rating or a review i'd really really appreciate you taking 30 seconds 30 seconds is all it will take to leave a rating and a short comment about what you think about this podcast it really really helps with the visibility of the podcast on those platforms the more ratings they get the more reviews they get the more it gets put in front of people who are likely to also like this podcast so it gets the information out to more people it gets more people into the community around the knowledge sharing that we're doing so 30 seconds of your time would be super super appreciated really helps me out and uh, helps everyone else out that might be looking for the same sort of information that you're interested in so thanks again for listening and i will speak to you on the next episode take care cheers <laughs>